I was uh, thinking back to last week, uh, Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, and we talked about last week how from the very beginning, God has been talking about resurrection. And considering that a little bit further, not only from the beginning has God been talking about resurrection, but from the beginning, God has been telling us everything we need to know. And there's something else, a big deal, something we need to know that he began talking about. Jude tells us in Jude 14, in the seventh generation from Adam, Enoch prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all, and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Those who are grumblers, finding fault, following after their own lusts, they speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. Think about that. In the seventh generation from Adam, If you go back to Genesis chapter 5, you see ten generations from Adam to Noah in the seventh generation. And if you count up the years, we're talking two, three hundred years between Adam and Enoch. Not that long. And God was already proclaiming to the entire world resurrection that we talked about last week and judgment. And we can't say, we can't come before the Lord and say, you never told us. You never made it clear. The message didn't get out. God has been speaking these things since the beginning. Now I'd like you to look at Job chapter 35. Job 35, as we barrel down the highway toward the end of this amazing book in in Scripture. Beginning in verse 5. Elihu is speaking. We just met Elihu briefly last Sunday and and again learned a little bit more about this interesting, mysterious young man on Wednesday night. Elihu is speaking to Job and he says in verse 5, Look at the heavens and see, and behold the clouds. They're higher than you. If you have sinned, what do you accomplish against him? And if your transgressions are many, what do you do to him? If you are righteous... What do you give to Him? Or what does He receive from your hand? Your wickedness is for a man like yourself, and your righteousness is for a son of man. Because of the multitude of oppressions, they cry out. They cry out for help because of the arm of the mighty. But no one says, Where's God my Maker, who gives songs in the night, who teaches us more than the beasts of the earth, and makes us wiser than the birds of the heavens? There they cry out, but he does not answer because of the pride of evil men. Surely God will not listen to an empty cry, nor will the Almighty regard it. How much less when you say you do not behold Him. The case is before Him, and you must wait for Him. And now because He has not visited in His anger, nor has He acknowledged transgression well, so Job opens his mouth emptily. He multiplies words without knowledge. Lord, I just ask that you would take us through what you have to teach us and say to us this morning. This critical of conversations. Vital to our hearts, our understanding, and vital, Lord, I believe to the way we are to live our lives. And I pray not one would miss the message this morning. 
In Jesus' name, Amen. Spring of 1985, Cheryl and I drove out in my little Toyota Corolla S5. And we had a couple of friends with us. We were living in Abilene, Texas at the time, in, in college there. And, and we all wanted to go out to 31 Flavors for some ice cream. It was a pretty hot day. Drove down the road, got to 31 Flavors, parked the car, got out. And as we were going in, I remember looking out. Now, if you've ever lived or been in Texas, the sky, I don't believe, is bigger anywhere else. That's what they claim, and it's absolutely true from horizon to horizon. It's because it's all so flat. But from one side of the sky to the other, it just seems like a massive sky overhead. And it was completely clear blue, hot afternoon. But I remember looking out to the horizon as we walked into 31 Flavors and seeing dark clouds kind of boiling. But so far off in the distance that this Southern California boy said, Oh, that won't be here for weeks. Ten minutes later, there was a deluge. Lightning, flashing, thunder, the storm hit with such suddenness that we were shocked. We're standing there still eating our ice cream, looking out the window, going, how are we going to get back to the car? It was absolutely wild. Driving back from 31 Flavors, the the four or five miles back to campus that day, we were going through literally rivers running across the highway. Almost drowned that little Toyota Corolla two or three times. It came so quickly, so suddenly, so surprisingly. The Pharisees and the Sadducees came up to Jesus in Matthew 16. And testing Him, they asked Him to show them a sign from heaven. And He replied to them, saying, When it's evening, you'll say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, there will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern the signs of the times? Now, I would be as undiscerning as a Pharisee and a Sadducee if I didn't tell you the storm is gathering. There is a storm coming. And Jesus said in Luke 17:26, Just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage. Nothing wrong with that. Until the day that Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. And no doubt there were some people who had seen the storm clouds on the horizon. Some who had, had been surprised or, or shouldn't have been, but they were. That this sudden deluge, it's raining, what's going on? People who were not listening to a message that had been given for centuries. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5.3, While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape Jesus said the signs will be there. We should see the storm gathering. But as in the days of Noah, most people won't be paying much attention. Most are not going to be... They're going to be picking out their flavors of ice cream. They're going to be hanging out with friends. They're going to think it's a wonderful spring day. The weather's too nice. The world's too easy. And it will come upon them suddenly. Young Elihu, speaking to Job, rather late in the story, has a very important place in the story. I asked the question on Wednesday night, why now? You know, after 31 chapters, suddenly in chapter 32, at the end of the story, this guy just pops up. This new character is introduced. 
Now, it's not a literary novel, or we'd think that's an interesting twist to the plot. It's, it's a historical account, and so if someone shows up at the end of the story, well, they show up. And Elihu is there, and he's speaking to Job, and he's saying these things, but the question is, why now? Why did the Lord consider it so important that this young Elihu show up now when he does? And here we begin to understand why Elihu comes. Why Elihu begins to speak. Look again at verse 5. Elihu says, Look at the heavens and see. Behold the clouds, they are higher than you. So what? So in the land of Uts, in the Middle East, very, very different than the Pacific Northwest, if there's a cloud in the sky, it means something. Here, there's always a cloud in the sky. You know, it's no big surprise. You look up, you see a cloud, ah, it may come, it may go, whatever. You probably get some rain today. Not in the Middle East. If there's a cloud in the sky, it means something's coming. It means there is going to be rain. And Elihu points this out. Skip over to chapter 36 and look at verse 27. Elihu, in some ways, similar to the way Jesus taught, he draws off of his surroundings. And there's, a one, there's one specific thing that Elihu begins to draw off of. We see it beginning in chapter 35. Look at the heavens and see, behold the clouds. Chapter 36, verse 27, he says, For he draws up the drops of water. They distill rain from the mist which the clouds pour down. They drip upon man abundantly. Can anyone understand the spreading of the clouds, the thundering of his pavilion? Behold, he spreads his lightning about him. Wait a minute, notice that, verse 30. Behold. Okay, Bible words. Just means look. Well, he says, look, he, sp- he spreads his lightning about him. He covers the depths of the sea. For by these he judges people and gives food in abundance and covers his hands with the lightning and commands it to strike the mark. Its noise declares His presence. The cattle also concerning what is coming up. What do you mean the cattle also? Elihu's saying, Job, the cows get it by now. They understand what's going on. They see what's coming. Continue on in chapter 37. He says that this also, my heart trembles and leaps from its place. Listen closely to the thunder of His voice and the rumbling that goes out from His mouth. Under the whole heaven, He lets it loose and His lightning to the ends of the earth. After it, a voice roars. He thunders with His majestic voice. He does not restrain the lightnings when His voice is heard. God thunders with His voice wondrously, doing great things which we cannot comprehend. Now, J. Vernon McGee says, and I believe absolutely right, during most of the discourse of Elihu, a storm was forming over the horizon. It grew darker. And the storm began to advance. The wind was probably howling and a few drops of heavy rain were beginning to fall. There is how he was speaking. And it probably became a formidable storm and the people were running for shelter. I think after he finished his discourse, Elihu also took off and ran for shelter and Job was left alone. What does verse 1 of chapter 38 tells us? Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. The storm was gathering. The rain increasing, the thunder deepening, the winds gusting, and out of the whirlwind then, God shows up. And there's a picture here, gang, that we ought not miss. In this, we see the primary purpose of Elihu. Suddenly, 32 chapters into a 42 chapter book, this new character appears. Why? Because Elihu is a forerunner of the gathering storm. Elihu is a forerunner. 
You see, if we look at history in its context, the Lord often sends forerunners to precede a storm. He often sends voices to speak ahead, to prepare people for what's coming. Let me give you some examples. Back in the book of Genesis chapter 6, verse 13, it tells us God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them, and behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. By the way, let me point this out. The reason for the flood, primary, the only reason given, and I know there were many other forms of wickedness going on, but the single most specific reason given is violence. Violence. How are we doing today with violence? He says in Genesis 6.17, Behold, I, even I, am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on earth shall perish. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5 tells us God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Now, for those who think the flood was unfair, it's just not right, God destroying the whole world. Who does he think he is? <laughs> Gang, the world was put on notice for 120 years as Noah preached. Genesis 6.3 tells us. 120 years. Noah is preaching on about the coming flood. He's building the ark. Why are you building that boat, Noah? Because a flood's coming. Because God is going to, he told me He's going to destroy the world. Listen, people, you've got to hear this. Noah, this preacher of righteousness, was preaching. The storm was coming. But you know what? Noah's not the forerunner I was interested in or concerned with this morning. Because the forerunner goes back earlier, as I mentioned before. You may want to jot this down, a few forerunners. The first one is the forerunner Enoch. The forerunner Enoch. Back in Genesis 5:21, it tells us Enoch lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. And then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah, and he had other sons and daughters. And then it goes on to tell us that Enoch walked with God, and then he was no more, for God took him. Jude tells us, again, Enoch was a prophet. And we know, we can trace this, go back. Enoch foretold the flood over a thousand years before it came. How do we know that? He was 65 years old when he named his son Methuselah. Genesis 5.27 tells us Methuselah lived 969 years. 969 plus 1,000, or plus 65 is 1,034. He named his son Methuselah. Why would the prophet Enoch do that? Well, you Bible students know why. Because Methuselah's name means, in his death it shall come. Methuselah died and the flood came. This was not a surprise in the world. For a thousand years there had been teachings, warnings, clear calls that a flood was coming, that God was going to destroy the world. There would be an end of all things as people knew it. Enoch was the first forerunner of the first great storm. The Lord sends forerunners to foresee gathering storms. You know, he, he never just judged Israel outright. In fact, that's something else we can draw out of the study of Israel and God's relationship with them. He sent warning after warning after warning, prophet after prophet. When they didn't listen, after fair warning, God would act. He would punish and draw them back. And then they would get off track again. He would send warning after warning, prophet after prophet, and they wouldn't listen, and He would punish to draw them back. This cycle continues throughout Israel's history. 
And they kept ignoring the warnings. And even Jesus said in Matthew 23, 37, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who are sent to you. How often I've wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. Israel's final prophet before 400 years of silence was Malachi. And Malachi's last few words mention another forerunner. Second thing to note, not just the forerunner Enoch, but the forerunner Elijah. Elijah. Malachi wrote in Malachi 4.5, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Now, some would say that's just an allusion to John the Baptist, right? Before the coming of Jesus. Well, listen again to Malachi's words specifically. I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Was the coming of Jesus the great and terrible day of the Lord? No, it was not. Well, then why do people say that John the Baptist is an Elijah figure? Well, listen to this. Luke 1.17, the angel told John the Baptist's father, Zacharias, he said, it's he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. Your son is going to have the spirit and power of Elijah. Like the prophet Elijah, that's what John the Baptist is going to be like. And so he's going to serve as a type, a picture of the forerunner. Matthew 17, verse 10. The disciples asked Jesus, Why then do the scribes say Elijah must come first? And he answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Now listen, Matthew tells us in verse 13, Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. Elijah is coming, but has already come. And they said, oh, he's talking about John. John 1.19 tells us this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Well, they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said to them, I am not. This whole thing can get a little bit confusing. But here's the simple way to understand it. John came in the spirit and power of Elijah, a forerunner like Elijah, but he was not Elijah. And remember, when Jesus spoke the words he did to his disciples, it was after John had already died. After John was beheaded, Jesus said, Elijah is coming. And Elijah already came. The Elijah figure who already came was John the Baptist. But the actual Elijah, I believe, I am absolutely convinced, the real Elijah himself will return before the second coming of Messiah. And if you want to look into that more deeply, study that a bit more, look at Revelation 11, verses 3 through 9. Go to the website. There's a whole teaching where we talk specifically about Elijah as one of the two witnesses that will come during the tribulation and warn of the imminent impending storm. One big difference between John and Elijah is this. John heralded Jesus' first coming, in which Jesus came with grace. Elijah will herald Jesus' second coming, in which Jesus comes with judgment. Well, I don't like the sound of that. Hey, listen again. He came first with grace. 
That's where we are this morning. We are in the age of grace. But the storm is coming. Judgment will happen. And when Jesus comes again, it will be a stormy event. John primarily heralds the first coming, although he did make one veiled reference to Jesus' second coming. I'll show you that momentarily. So we see the forerunner Enoch. We see the forerunner Elijah. But I want to hone in now on the words of the forerunner Elihu because he speaks words that he could just as well be sitting here speaking to us this morning. The forerunner Elihu. He's younger than the other guys, but Elihu is fiery like a prophet. He's concerned for Job like a shepherd, and he's spirit-filled. As we talked about Wednesday, while Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar defended their religion and belief, and Job defended Job, Elihu speaks for God. Elihu has one purpose, to speak for the Lord and to herald His coming. And by the way, Elihu's name means He is God. My God is He. Look at verse 5 again. Job 35. Look at the heavens and see, and behold, the clouds, they're higher than you. He says, if you have sinned, what do you accomplish against Him? And if your transgressions are many, what do you do to Him? If you are righteous... What do you give to him? Or what does he receive from your hand? Your wickedness is for a man like yourself, and your righteousness is for a son of man. What are you saying, Elihu? He makes a great point. He says, what do you think your sin and, or your righteousness, either one, what do you think it actually does to God? Seriously. Do you think your behavior, one way or another, impacts or affects God? That's what he's saying. How about us? Do we think our good or bad behavior can manipulate God? Okay, God, if you won't do things my way, I'm not going to go to your church. (laughs) That'll teach you. I just won't go. If that's the way God is, I'm just going to do my own thing. I'll have nothing to do with Him. People do that all the time, don't they? It's like stubbing your toe... And then kicking the coffee table in revenge. It doesn't make any sense. Who ends up hurt? The coffee table? Or you? Lord, Lord, did you see all the good I did for you today? Pretty glad I'm one of yours, aren't you? (laughs) The greatest impact of both my sin and my righteousness is on me. And secondarily, on those around me. But Elihu says, do you really think that you're bending the will of the Lord by speaking against Him, Job? Or or elevating your innocence and your righteousness, Job? Really? You have an awfully high opinion of yourself, my friend. Now understand this. In truth, your sin, your righteousness does matter to God because you matter to God. It does affect God because He loves you. You know, I can look at my kids all day long and say, look, if you want to make this this choice, it's your life. But to tell you the truth, as a parent, I feel it. So God does feel our choices, but Elihu is right. You're not going to sway Him by your deeds. The consequences of your choices, my choices, it falls on us. And whether we're good or bad, ladies and gentlemen, the storm is gathering. Judgment is coming. And no amount of human righteousness will save any of us. And no amount of human sin is going to be able to put off the coming wrath. 
God said He will pour out His wrath on a Christ-rejecting sinful world. And that is coming. And we can see the clouds. The storm is gathering. There's one way to avoid that coming wrath. Most of you understand, you know this. And that's to allow Jesus to take that wrath off of you and on Himself at the cross. To allow Him to take the judgment, to put your faith into Him, to pour your, your, yourself out to him before Him. Lord, take my life and be my sacrifice. That's why He died. In 1 Thessalonians 5.9, one of the most comforting verses in all Scripture, for God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. But the storm is coming. Verse 9. Because of the multitude of oppressions, they cry out. They cry for help because of the arm of the mighty. But no one says, where's God my Maker? Who gives songs in the night. Who teaches us more than the beasts of the earth. And makes us wiser than the birds of the heavens. Boy, I'd like to just plaster that verse, verse 11, on every institution teaching evolution throughout the world. There they cry out. But he does not answer because of the pride of evil men. Elihu says people are crying out all over the place. People are oppressed. People are upset. People are worried. People are hurried. People are in trouble. And they're crying out. But not to God. They're looking for help everywhere else. They go to counselors. They go to doctors. They go to political rallies. This will fix the world. They dive into work. They jump into pleasure, into any distraction to keep them from noticing, from focusing on, from seeing the deepening clouds on the horizon. In verse 13, Elihu says, Surely God will not listen to an empty cry, nor will the Almighty regard it. It's one of the absolutely untrue scenes in in that movie, Bruce Almighty. You know, all the prayers going up, and Bruce comes into the position where he's supposed to be God or he's given God's you know, authority for a bit, for a time. And all of a sudden he's hearing all these prayers. You know what? I don't believe that's the way it is. God doesn't listen to the emptiness of man just crying out into the wind. The emptiness of people saying, Oh, help me if there's something... Well, then how do people get saved? There's one prayer God hears from a sinner and that's, Save me, Lord. But all the other things people are asking for and seeking without any faith in Jesus whatsoever, it's emptiness. It's vapid. It makes no sense. How many people pray, I wonder, with no relationship to Jesus at all? How many prayers go up but never get past a few feet? Because there's no faith in Jesus Christ who is the intercessor who takes our prayers before the Father. Again, the only prayer God is obliged to hear from anyone who does not have faith in Jesus Christ is the first one. Save me, Lord Jesus. All the rest is emptiness. Verse 14. How much less when you say you do not behold Him. The case is before Him. And you must wait for Him. Now watch this. And now because He has not visited in His anger, nor has He acknowledged transgression well... So Job opens his mouth emptily and multiplies words without knowledge. That was Job's problem. You see, days have gone by and then months. And in this time of Job upset about his life and and how everything had fallen apart, he was getting no answer. And because he was getting no answer, Elihu says, you're multiplying words. Job, you need to shut up. You need to stop your talking. 
Because you're just speaking on and on and on and on and on. And that is mankind's problem today. That, Ellis, you could preach this morning out of any pulpit in America or in the world. He could stand on the streets and say the exact same thing. Because God has not visited in His anger, nor has He acknowledged transgression well, you open your mouth emptily and multiply words without knowledge. And Peter put it this way. He said, people are saying, where's the promise of His coming? Forever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. And Peter says, not so. He says, while they maintain this, it escapes their notice. That by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded by water. Things have not continued the way they always have been since creation. There was a flood that destroyed the entire earth because people were not paying attention. No one looked up and saw the gathering storm. Remember Enoch, the forerunner? He said judgment would come after his son Methuselah passed away. And it came. And when God says a storm is coming, you better believe a storm is coming. The Bible warns of a vast, cataclysmic, worldwide tribulation such as planet Earth has never yet seen, nor ever again will. Jesus said there will be a great tribulation, Matthew 24:21, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will, something worse than anything that this world has ever seen. And following worldwide judgment, there will be individual personal judgment of all the deeds of man for those who want to be judged by their deeds rather than be covered by Jesus. People who would rather appear in court on their own behalf instead of asking Jesus to be their defense. Here's the pattern. Note this. It's warning. Followed by a period of grace. Followed by judgment. Warning. Followed by a period of grace. Followed by judgment. Warning. Grace. Judgment. Warning. Grace. Judgment. And this has gone on and on and on. And we're coming to the point where warning, grace, judgment, the final storm is upon us. We must not miss or ignore or slough off the warning of the coming storm of wrath. As though it was just some kind of you know, old school hellfire preaching. I'm not a doom and gloom pastor. I mean, those of you who know me know I'm not normally a negative guy. And I don't normally like to live my life negatively. I'm pretty positive. But I am absolutely astounded by the rise, and let me just speak to the church this morning, I'm astounded by the rise of pseudo-post-millennial kingdom now, glory of the church teaching, that completely ignores the thunderheads that are on the horizon. Let me give you an example. I, occasionally, as people come and go, a lot of Navy personnel will, will be going to other places, and, and at times people will say, hey, we're going to this city. Can you help us find a church? Do you know of a church in this town or, or in this neck of the woods? And so I'll get online and start looking and, 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 and encourage to say, hey, this looks really good to me, you know, for whatever my opinion's worth. And recently I was reading a church's website's belief statement. And I was going down the belief statement. I was going, yeah, good, good, yeah, I'm right on, tracking all the way down until I got to this. And listen, 
We believe in the present rule and reign of our Lord Jesus Christ in His kingdom authority through His body, the church. This will result in a glorious church and a global harvest, and that harvest will characterize the end of the age. What's wrong with that? It's not what the Bible teaches. What are you saying? Yes, there will be a global harvest after the church as we know it is gone. We, as much as we would like to think that we will do it, will not. We're going to find out that the power to bring any kind of harvest to save anyone only comes from the Holy Spirit. And if you are used by the Spirit to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to an individual, praise God, it was His work. You just happen to be the tool Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, Peter, but my Father who is in heaven, Jesus said. And yet there's this mentality out there. Kingdom now, dominionism, I've talked about it before, and the problem that I have with it, gang, it teaches that the church, though spirit-empowered, will accomplish glorious, global salvation, and then when Jesus comes, we'll hand him the keys of the world. As if on a silver platter, here's what we've done, here's what we've accomplished, here's what we've done for you, Lord. I have yet to see biblical backing for a statement like that. All the way down to belief statement on this particular website, there were verses until I got to that one. No verse. Nothing stating, why do you believe this? And it's believed by those who are excited. Yes, they want to serve the Lord. They want to see lives saved. I I get that, and I'm all for that. Then why are you all upset, Rick? Isn't it just a difference of opinion? I mean, honestly, why does it really matter? Let them think what they think. You think we're all in Jesus Christ together, right? No big deal. Don't you anyway believe in Jesus' rule and reign? Over my heart? Absolutely. In His church? Yes. Over the whole world? What world are you living in? Do we see the global reign of Jesus in His kingdom right now? We live in a sick and twisted world. Do we really, and, and you got hang with me here, do you really see Jesus reigning over mankind? Hey, churches are doing great things in the name of Jesus Christ, and there is a worldwide move, and especially among Muslims today, which is astounding. And missions spreading out, and the gospel is getting into places it's never been before. But Jesus is not ruling and reigning like He promises He will on planet Earth. Not now. Not yet. Psalm 110, verse 1, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool at your feet. Well, didn't that happen at the cross? No, not yet. Everything was put in place for it to happen, but it's not been fully accomplished. Where's Jesus right now? See, I know His Spirit is among us. I know where two or three are gathered together. He said He is there. But where is He personally and presently right now? Matthew 16, 19 says, When the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, He was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12 tells us, Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. This is in the book of Hebrews. Waiting from that time onward until His enemies be made a footstool for His feet. That was written after the cross. And that's a quote of Psalm 110, but the Hebrew writer tells us it hadn't happened yet. That is a time coming. What's the point, Rick? Jesus will rule. But His kingdom rule 
has not yet begun. Before it comes, and here's the point, before it comes, there comes a storm. And that's my concern. That's what I fear will be completely missed. Matthew 24:39. They did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. And then they got it. And so will the coming of the Son of Man be. The world will not understand until, until judgment comes. And then it'll be like, oh, oh, that's... Hey, listen, we can, we can disagree. And we can agree to disagree on various points of Scripture, but my concern about this Kingdom Now theology is this. It denies the coming storm. And if we deny the coming storm, or we believe it happened in A.D. 70, and it's past then the very thing we will not do is issue our responsibility, and that is a clear warning of coming judgment. And the world needs to know judgment is coming. Wait a minute. You, you want me to tell a non-Christian person that they're going to be judged and that hell is a possibility for them? Yes. Yes. And that grace is now. And that doesn't have to be the case. But judgment is coming. And the church has been remiss in making this message clear in the world. The storm is gathering on the horizon and people are out barbecuing. Enoch, by God's grace, forewarned of the coming storm a thousand years later. Elihu ready Job to hear from God before he came in the whirlwind. Elijah will come with the fair and final warning of judgment. And you might say, well, that all sounds so Old Testament. Listen, at the start of Jesus' ministry, in his hometown synagogue there in Nazareth, he stood up to read from the scroll of Isaiah. Here's what he read, and it's from Isaiah 61, verse 1. He said, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he stopped. And Luke tells us in Luke 4.20, he closed the book. He gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Why? Why were the eyes of everyone in the synagogue fixed on him? Well, for a couple of reasons. They wanted to see what he was going to say. But another larger reason that we forget or would miss, he didn't finish reading. Jesus stopped mid-verse. He says to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And a Jewish person would have known the rest of that verse. Jesus didn't say it yet. Isaiah 61, verse 2, And the day of vengeance of our God. Why didn't Jesus say that? Because He only read what was prophesied of His first coming. And that was about His second coming. Now remember this. Let's push this a little bit further. What did John the Baptist say about Jesus? Primarily, he heralded Jesus' first coming, right? John said, He's coming. and He says, As for me... Matthew 3.11, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And we have all kinds of cute little flames to depict the Holy Spirit in the church today. And no doubt those little pictures and cartoon images and, and logos come from the day of Pentecost when we know flames of fire appeared above 
the apostles when the Holy Spirit came on them. But I need you to understand something, and John makes this absolutely clear. The Holy Spirit is for this age. The baptism of fire is a warning of judgment of the day to come, the age to come. Listen. Isaiah 66.15 For behold, the Lord will come in fire and His chariots like the whirlwind to render His anger with fury and His rebuke with flames of fire. For the Lord will execute judgment by fire and by His sword on all flesh and those slain by the Lord will be many. I don't like to read those passages. Let me give you another one. Hebrews 10.26 If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Now listen to all of what John said. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I. I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, praise God, and fire. And here's how he describes the fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. In the age of grace, Jesus brings us grace, offers the outpouring of his Holy Spirit on anyone who would believe, but he will also baptize with fire, and that comes with his second coming. Revelation 6, verse 16 tells us to the mountains and to the rocks the people will cry out fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand that's just the beginning of the judgment of the wrath of God Revelation 6 if you read it on through all the way through chapter 19 It goes from bad to worse as the wrath of God is poured out on a Christ-rejecting and sinful world. And listen to how it ends up. Revelation 19.11 I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on himself which no one knows except himself. He's clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of the commanders, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, and small and great And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. And these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone and the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. 
And this is your Easter follow-up message? (laughs) Wouldn't it have been better to talk about something a little softer? A little more fluffy? Like a lamb? I just did. They say, the wrath of the lamb! Hide us from this! Listen, this is so important. The storm is coming. Judgment is coming. Wrath and fury, it is coming. Like it or not, warning, a period of grace, and then comes judgment. But I'm not talking about judgment to be judgmental. And I pray not a single one of us would ever use the coming judgment to be judgmental of another person. Why then talk about judgment? For the sake of compassion. You talk about judgment because you love someone enough to talk about judgment. I raised my kids on this same pattern. Warning, grace, judgment. (laughs) Because I love them. If you do this, this will be your consequence. Please don't do this. And then there's a period of grace while they decide if they're going to do it or not. And then there's judgment. Elihu shows up at the tail end of Job's story as one who prepares the way for the Lord to come. He is a picture. Just as Enoch prepared the way for the flood, just as Elijah will prepare the way for Jesus the second time. And just as you can prepare the way for the Lord today. Followers of Jesus, listen, we are forerunners for this generation. It's the most important thing you can possibly do with your life is serve as a forerunner of the coming of Jesus. Jude says in verse 22, Have mercy on some who are doubting and save others, snatching them out of the fire. If there's any one thing we should do in our lives, any one way to spend our lives, it's trying to grab people before they go down to the pit. Grab people out of the fire. 2 Corinthians 5.20, Paul says we're ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now, if this morning you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, And even if these words are making you uncomfortable, listen, this is a warning out of love for you. Because the Lord would have you know what's coming because He doesn't want you to go through what's coming. Be reconciled to God. And this is our plea. Because in all truth, the storm is gathering. Look at the heavens and see. Behold the clouds. Behold, He spreads out His lightning about Him. Listen closely to the thunder of His voice and the rumbling that goes out from His mouth. And Father, we pray a prayer of grace. Lord, I often ask Jesus that You would come back soon. That You would come quickly. And I can't wait for Your coming. But today, I shift that just long enough to pray, God, give us enough grace that more people could be saved. And Father, would You give us just enough grace so that we as Your people would no longer remain silent, but would be open and honest and willing to talk about what's coming. That we would be motivated by the reality that there is a storm coming. We see it. Unlike the Pharisees, we see the signs of the times. We know what's coming. 
And I pray that you would raise this issue among us and the urgency of salvation. And I ask you, Lord, this morning, if there is anyone here who just has not given their life to you, to trust you, to follow you, Holy Spirit, would you convict today and make it happen? In Jesus I pray. Amen.